1: Welcome back. Thanks for tuning in. Today, I interview Chris C., the founding director of Cardstack. Chris is a technologist and designer focused on improving the usability of decentralized applications with the aim of making Web3 available for the masses. In 2014, he founded Cardstack, where he leads a team of open source contributors to build the collaborative OS for Web3. He previously built the first NFT platform on the Bitcoin blockchain. He also pioneers the use of distributed ledger technology to create media registries. Chris has more than a decade of experience leading R&D and innovation teams for Fortune 500 companies. He holds a degree in computer science from Columbia. He's incredibly knowledgeable, obviously on the topic of Cardstack. We discuss the approach of going open source of token economics, and the future of, as he sees, NFTs and crypto adoption by mainstream. I really enjoyed this conversation with Chris. He is a conversationalist. He's a fun person to talk to. And I hope you enjoy. Here is Chris C. All right, Chris, coming off a fantastic pre-show. Uh, I'm really excited to get to know you more. Um, you are now leading card stack and you've been there since twenty fourteen. Yes. Uh let's just start there. How do you describe what card stack where card stack is today by any meaningful quantitative measurements? And then where do you see the trajectory in the future?
2: Yeah, I think Cardstack is the journey I've been taking for, you know, what looks like, you know, eight years so far, which is a long time in tech and certainly a long time in crypto. Uh, Our vision has always been composable applications. We hate silos. We hate choosing which app to use to contact whose person, logging to 10 different places just to get one thing done. And, you know, Cossack started uh, in the Web2 space, which is, can we put an open source toolkit to clone the feature of the big giant SaaS and fan company and make it so that we can replace those features and give people Lego blocks that can build their own thing? This is prior to crypto. And that always kind of makes sense a little bit. Uh, but, you know, there's a lot of control over, oh, Instagram doesn't have an API, or if you have one, you don't have access to it. Uh, whereas once I met the people from, you know, Ethereum, which is when I got into crypto, was like, ah, they're doing the backend part of it. Now I should switch this decentralized front end on a blockchain ecosystem, and that will make it naturally composable. And so today, what we're building is both wallets and super dApps, like a kind of like a dApp environment, not just dApp as an individual apps. You go to different URL, no different than Web2, but actually one dApp you go to that's hosted by yourself. And then you can get this different module and mix and match your own environment for your own workflow, whether it's trading or minting or other future use cases. So Cardstack can be looked at as there's a really hard problem. So how do you do composable software? That's not a crypto problem. That's a computer science problem. So we work on that more research and also continuously integrating with new protocols, whether it's a uh, smart contract wallet like Nosa Safe, or Wallet Connect and Ethereum and Layer 2, all this stuff like that, so that we can have a convergence. And hopefully soon within this year, everything will come together that we have always envisioned since 2014 on top of permissionless protocol on the backend, with a unified front-end and mobile and the web. Uh,
1: uh, explain to me, when you say composable, what does that mean to you?
2: Composable just means that you don't need to do the thing again if you want to use that thing inside a thing. Copy and paste is composable, right? Why would you write it from scratch if you can just take someone's work and put it in there? Embedding something in a block with a YouTube video is composable. you're taking capability of video player technology which you can't replicate overnight, and bring it into your own context. Um, composability is always about taking an output of one person or one application or one entity and then making that as a building block of your own thing. Um, DeFi or these kind of blockchain protocols are pretty composable. You have a token, that token becomes a uh, a thing for a trading system. And then you have a trading system, you have liquidity, and then you get a token that's also in the same wallet. So that mix and match capability uh, has been demonstrated, at least in the backend, uh, on the, on the kind of data side. Uh, and we're just saying, you know, why would we, why do you have to log into like three or four different apps to do these things? Because the backend is composable. The token is well understood. The signing is clear. Maybe the key management is already kind of composable via MetaMask or Rainbow, but the UI, as long as you have to visit five URL is not composable yet. That's what we're working on.
1: I see. I see. Got it. Got it. So the most technical part of the project is what? The integration of the behind the scenes uh, layer one blockchain to allow the composability on the front end? Is that generally why this is not solved yet?
2: Uh, That's not the hardest part. So what you're talking about is data source. Like, oh, my data is coming from... The mainnet. My 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 data is coming from Polygon. My data is coming. That's actually relatively easy. You, you you call an API, you get some data. The hard part is the composability in your browser or within your application. Like for example, a very simple thing you do, people do all the time. They swap. Right here's a little form called Uniswap. I can swap it. But sometimes you need to pay someone. I want to pay you. Well, you want to get paid in USDC versus USDT, so I have to swap it. Now I have to do two steps and I have to go to two places to do it. All these have your favorite like curve or whatever it might be. In a composable system, there is a button called pay this person in USDC. And it will figure out that you first have to do the conversion. Maybe you need to bridge something. You may have to withdraw something from a hot wallet and then you have to convert and then they pay them and then they give you an NFT for receipt. That is all done kind of like an automation script. The best example I have with composability is open world games like Grand Theft Auto. Like You can do each thing separately, but all of those elements and guns and peoples and cars are composable. And when you're in a mission, you can just kind of step through each thing and you don't have to go to five different apps to do the action you have in the game. So we're trying to build a game engine of sorts to contain all the tools and objects which represent different on-chain and off-chain things and people, and then orchestrate it through a cohesive things. And here's a punchline. Do it in a way that's open source that anybody can contribute to.
1: Yeah, yeah, the open source and anyone can contribute to feels like the, 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 the place where the analogy of Grand Theft Auto breaks down. Cause Grand Theft Auto, yes. Auto is a closed yes. walled container that, you know, you could swap out the cars because it's one game design, one person that has built the code base. Uh, yes. when it becomes open source, do you, do you feel in essence there's an analogy to, uh, creating the standard like railway where there's different trains driving around and, and they have different wheel. This is a problem when they were building the railroad system in the US mm-hmm. uh, In other parts of the world too. The trains were configured different ways. So there wasn't an ability for trains to swap on the rails. And then yes. the, the government actually said, let's develop a standard for this. And now they're all, all rails are the same uh, spacing. Is that how you sort of see it? You want to come in and say, Hey, let's develop this standard across the industry?
2: Yeah, I think so. I mean, if you look at the power of ERC-20, like when the standard of like what a token is and these are the basic verbs, and ERC-721 for NFT is the same thing. Once the standard happens, the composability can happen. So there's this weird situation where you want standards, but you also want innovation. So you want to standardize the rails but you want to differentiate the first class experience, right? Like you want to have different types of people going on top of it. Rails are still pretty centralized, but cars like standardized highways with signage, but then you can drive a highly efficient Tesla car. Or you can drive a Hummer or now they have an EV Hummer, whatever. It's kind of grand, uh, grand circle. But the idea that you can have <laughs> your own choices uh, to build your own UI and your own kind of you know feel and culture and vibe while being compliant to a standard minting platform all look different does the same thing underneath it. that's what we want to achieve and that's not an easy thing to do, but the web has done it before where RSS was standard and blocks are different, and that standardization provides interoperability without taking away that kind of uniqueness that my Facebook page doesn't give me so we're trying to bring back that web two web one spirit of differentiation while introducing standardization and 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 through a process similar to the ELC or EIP process. Interesting.
1: Okay. So is there a, uh, if you were to steel man, any pushback argument on this, that when you build a standard, you're inherently limiting alternative uh, mm. concepts. So, you know, in the same with the internet, you're saying this is the way it is, and it's not any other way other than HTTP or TCP IP. And these are the protocols, you have to follow them if you want to play. Well, yeah. There's design decisions you have to make with any standard. Are there, is there a, uh, a, any group of people articulating any uh, sensible pushback to this that that you can steelman or give them the, the benefit of the doubt in their argument?
2: I think there's always been two approaches of making standardization. One is that to do standardization, you need to buy into this entire new theory. Everything has to be elegant and well-architected. There's six layers, 17 different ways of doing it. That is how we're going to build this cathedral. Everybody built their part. In fact, that's not how the internet was. There was actually something called the OSI stack, right? Which is academic thinking about how networking and application needs to work. The internet was kind of like, yeah, good enough packets, throwing it there, see if it gets there. That's always been looked at as like, well, that's kind of crappy. Like Unix is also like not high spirit, like the future of computing. It's just like, well, that works. Now we can like, you know, share files or whatever it might be. Um, I like technology that are like consensus driven at the low brow level, right? So nobody thinks that JavaScript, which is a programming language we use to make most of the things, is going to be as You know, as prevalent because it's not really a highbrow language. It's a lowbrow language to just get some things to work on a website. Those are what I call cockroach technology. Technology you can't kill. It's just proliferate everywhere. Solidity in Ethereum is kind of the same thing. So my theory is that to do composability, don't be highbrow. Just use what exists. What have people already using? That's why our stack is all JavaScript. A lot of solidity, because that's what people do, and some Python for the data analytics stuff and data science, which I think is an important ingredient we'll talk about later. So... Our framework is just really about organizing the things that people are already using. Wallet Connect, Smart Contract Wallet, and make a framework out of those parts versus say, hey, I have this future OS of a thing that I have a spirit on. And you say you have to buy into this new programming language and new thing. That's hard to pull off. And there are a couple of projects doing that. So I would say that we are trying to salvage what exists in web1, web2, web3, SaaS, cloud, blockchain, whatever, and see what we can make some standards out of that. Uh And the other approach would be invent a future web-operating system. Uh, we're not doing the second th- I think we'll achieve the same goal, right? But I think using what people are already using that has this shelling point already, like JavaScript approach. So all of our technology is leveraging innovation that's already there in bundling code, shipping code, hosting code, creating dependency, importing code, all that stuff is already being done every day by a JavaScript developer. Let's use those rails to build our technology.
1: I love it. I love it. How, how did the company evolve? Do, do you call it a company or project? Open source never really has a, a good label as a company. It yes. Was, and also, I'd love you to tell me how... Both you started it back in 2014, and how <laughs> you would do it today. Because mm. starting an open source project, I mean, starting a starting a company period is challenging enough. Then yes. starting a Web three company, generally the way that I understand that people start these companies is that, and I I, I have done this myself, is that you start a company, typical LLC or C corp you you raise money for that, and you're either selling ownership in that company or you're selling tokens pre sale to investors you build a product as fast as you can, you release it, then the tokenomics engage, meaning that people purchase the token, they drive yes. it up, hopefully. And then your company, the goal of the company is to dissolve entirely. It's like you start yes. a company just to dissolve, where the people contributing in the community is so big that the company is is less than 1% of the development. And then you just have this decentralized, you kind of have to go yes. from centralized to decentralized. Ha, yeah. is Is that... You are not. You are building something similar to that, but you have a spin on open source. H- how is the model, the business model, uh, constructed? And yeah, tell me more. I
2: think you've 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 described the contour right, which is that any human organization with a leader and with like you know you know key people is a great way to get started so you're not just debating whether something is politically or culturally acceptable just try to organize yourself to get it done but the largest system the one that can organize most people are where you just let people govern themselves it's like you know it's like self governance and decentralization so we We actually, I think, was the first to really use this phrase uh, in a white paper called progressive decentralization. So people use this nowadays, and Jesse Warner has popularized that phrase in his advocacy work on Web3. So we started out as a bootstrap software agency, helping people use open source software that we use, but we didn't invent. So we kind of started as an open source support company. And then based on that, we kind of learned and we had an opportunity to consult for another open-source project called Drupal. So uh, the company behind Drupal is called Acquia. Uh, and Dries, who is the founder and the, the lead programmer of the Drupal project and his team, invited us to help them understand better JavaScript because that's, JavaScript was the frontier back when we started. So we helped them out. But we also, what we taught them about JavaScript and front-end kind of innovation, we've learned about how you cultivate this open-source culture and environment at a commercial scale where three or four different companies hire people to run to contribute to the project, but they all have their own business serving customers in a kind of, I have a number of the call if something goes wrong and there's a good business model called open source support model. So we thought we're going to go that way. So we went and took more project and kind of try to build out a little uh, uh, stack and, you know, when you reinvest your return earning to build software you care about, there's only that amount of velocity you can get. So you can dream big, but you have to do what you can do, right? It's like doing side projects. You only have that budget. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when I met the folks from Ethereum and Joe Lubin and Vitalik in particular, I would say, well, they're trying to raise, like, I think what's it 15 or $16 million to do this wow, if we have like three, we could really do this. Um, so we, we then went ahead and said, well, we're not quite ready to do that yet. So we continue doing some consulting in this case in blockchain. And I was you know invited to be CTO of a company that built the first NFT marketplace on the Bitcoin blockchain, the payments on Stripe, but all the what was um, that one? tokens. It's called Monograph. Okay, Uh, it's in Wikipedia. If you if you if you actually look up uh, uh, NFT on Wikipedia, the Monograph Project, the 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 fine arts version, the art project that started it all. I was the CTO of the commercial part of that, so turn it into a thing where you can actually transact using credit cards and stuff. Um, You know, obviously Bitcoin doesn't have tokens, doesn't have gated transfer. The scriptability is limited, so we kind of use. Uh, traditional fintech technology overlay on top of the Bitcoin ledger with the assets on Bitcoin, but the payments, uh, things. So now, obviously, ELC20 and Ethereum took over that. Uh, but the, the, there comes a time where we were, uh, um, we met someone from the Swiss ecosystem, uh, and they say, Hey, you know, have you thought about, uh, what you, exactly what you just said, and I was like, "Well, that would be interesting." And that's when we uh, put together something that's compliant, that is uh, that is well structured and safe. So we create a nonprofit foundation in Switzerland in Zug, uh called Casteck Foundation, and say, "Well, this is a project that is going to be uh, well funded, well enough for us to really do everything that we think needs to be done from the wallet all the way down to the protocol for payments." If you're building a virtual world, right, you have to do that, um, and that's what we have been doing and solving problems and releasing uh, in- incremental software ever since.
1: And w- you started it in in Switzerland. Why?
2: Um, I think there is a there is a, uh, a there is a strong discipline in Switzerland about. Doing what you say you're going to do. So the Swiss foundation structure is basically you tell the Swiss government that you're going to do this thing. They give you permission and tax regulations and, uh, you know, approval basically to, to, to do this within the country, but you have to stick to what you're going to do until you finish. And I like that. It's like, it's yeah. like writing a piece of paper and then putting it in like a, either mounting it on your wall or like your plaques. Like, remember, this is your charter. That's what you want to do. And I felt like that aligns with my vision because, you know, people come in and out of blockchain projects, yeah. Does good things, rug pull, they lose interest, they they become, you know, influencers or they disappear into the woods or oh, whatever, right? <laughs> yeah. but, but I made a commitment to our community, to ourselves, to our team, the team that was with us here are largely still there. So here working on these hard problems, uh, we just felt like we were very compatible with the Swiss ecosystem and we're willing to write down what we're going to say and do what we say we're going to do. And, and do you have to be in
1: Switzerland to start a Swiss, Swiss nonprofit, or do they have, uh, you know, is there a downside to saying, let's start this in the U.S.? I suppose you would have more flexibility if you were in the U.S. Is the implication I'm getting that you could pivot the company entirely and still be a nonprofit where you couldn't do that in Switzerland?
2: Yeah, I think you just need to visit them, you know, three, four times a year. Obviously during COVID, uh, I don't do that flight right? because it's very hard to travel even between Europe and US for a lot. Yeah, but you de- you go there, you meet the people and you go to the ecosystem. I think it's a good thing. Um, I think Switzerland more than other type of jurisdiction is not like a, you just mail and they just like handle your mail in the office. You, you actually have to be there. And I enjoy being there because uh, it's a different uh, pace, there's a different types of... Uh, uh, practicality and, 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 and spirit that really contrast very nicely uh, to, to what goes on uh, in different parts of the uh, world.
1: If you own crypto and leave it on the exchange where you bought it, like Coinbase, that is a mistake. We've heard the news lately, exchanges closed, accounts frozen. We're learning the hard way that crypto on exchanges is not really in your control. So what can you do about it? Well, you can get a crypto wallet and control the crypto yourself. And that's why today's show is sponsored by ZenGo. These guys realized that storing Bitcoin and storing crypto yourself can be difficult. It's risky to keep private keys. They realized this and said there's got to be a better way. So they created a crypto wallet that is fully recoverable. So say goodbye to lost Bitcoins. And the security of this wallet is incredible. It's a hacker's worst nightmare. They use a three-factor authentication, including 3D biometrics, so no one can access your wallet except for you. And ZenGo realizes that at different levels of the crypto journey, you have different needs, so they offer 27 support and have real people that are available to contact directly within the app. They have a bunch of different coins, Bitcoin, Ethereum, Tezos, and more, and they have all sorts of NFTs available as well. So now for the first time, you can keep your crypto safe with the same tools that the big guys have used for years. Download Zengo, that's Z-E-N-G-O, and use code ATC to get $20 back on your first purchase of $200 or more. That's $20 back for your first purchase of $200 or more. Use code ATC and check out Zengo. Yeah. That's super interesting. All right. Well, Chris, I want to ask you, you started in Switzerland, you have this nonprofit. Did you start it as, as a nonprofit specifically feeling like that structure was necessary to build something that's open source or was it just kind of uh, a philanthropic, uh, urge that you had? I mean, um, there's a price you pay, right, for starting a nonprofit and that your earnings for the company can't go back into mm-hmm. or they can't be mm-hmm. distributed to owners. Uh, yes. Do you have? Did you see a pathway forward to the early folks in the team having a big financial reward that was separate, either owning tokens and then building for the value of the tokens, selling the tokens one day? Is that the general... Yeah, I think
2: tokens, tokens align interests within the team relatively well. Uh, but I do think that when one company is in charge of the whole software, you kind of take the air out of the room where everybody else is just like, oh, I play in the Microsoft ecosystem, but you're not Microsoft, right? But if you have a nonprofit in the center, there's more opportunity to say, Hey, we're going to make the best version of a hosting thing for enterprise to use Costack. That's a nice business. We're going to make education to use Costack. That's a different business. But if there's like one corporation like Meta or Microsoft or Google, those becomes really small. Kind of like, you know, you can't think really big because you know, the, the behemoth is the thing. So I think Open Source Foundation, I think Ethereum Foundation has done that, right? Mm-hmm. So they've been able to say, here is a place where we can do the work that other people can't afford to fund, but you're welcome to build an exchange, build a protocol, build a token, build an NFT marketplace. And and that type of uh, kind of separation of uh, responsibility actually grow a bigger ecosystem. So I actually believe that the center should be a comment. The same way in Boston, there's a commonness center that allows all the privately held property to be more valuable. Uh, and I think that's a good model to do. Yeah. Instead of having the palace in the middle, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. I agree. Given given
1: what you're trying to, to do, really what you're trying to do is convince, I mean, tell me if you see it differently, but you're trying to convince mm-hmm. uh, uh, developers to use your standard. And if you're a for-profit mm-hmm. company, you're always going to have an incentive to, charge people and it just doesn't seem it doesn't seem the right model to introduce a standard across the industry. Um, mm-hmm. How do you how do you measure progress quantitatively? Is it users, the value of the token, the number of projects that are using this standard or something else? I
2: think they're all correlated, but I think you know, at this stage we have right now is that we want to improve the headroom of the composability. So if you go into uh, a good example is that if you go into a, a new, uh, uh, endeavor and your tools is just like a hammer, then you all, all you know is that everything is a nail and you hammer on it. But if you bring a nice toolbox and you know that that toolbox can build a house, a pool, a yard and whatever it might be, then you feel like, Especially if you engage more people, they can have, be very creative about it. So we're still thinking about what is the minimum number of tools that is work well together to maximize the creativity. So the way we look at this and a lot of our analysis is like, what if I want to build salesforce.com with Costack? What will we need as a tool? And what if I also want to use Costack to build Slack? And what if I also want to, be able to build a payment system like Stripe? And what if I want that payment system to have a store? What is the primitive that's in common for all those S's? Build those. So we look at the combinatorial, almost like a mathematician figure out how many variables do I need to express all the numbers in the world, right? And then quite try to create the smallest formula to generate it. So it's about the reduction of the size of the software without losing the permutation of what it can be. That's what we're aiming to do. It's a very weird metrics to optimize for. But if you have that metrics, if you have that real like multiply effect... Then token multiplies when people come in and build different things, right? Number of developer multiplies because everybody learns and know the tools already and they can build things and feel satisfied. Then other people iterate on the things and build on top of it. Are those all become secondary to the tool making? So we are two inventors and tool maker right now. And that's why we took so long. Every single time we build a set of tool, we try to use it to build something. And it's like, huh, oh, this hammer is too unique function. Let's make it a little bit more flexible. And then we like break the tools now. and obviously we don't ship the thing. But now we get into a point where they feel very confident with our tool around how we do a schema, security, US composability design system. And those things gives us confidence that when released to tools to sort of people, it's a low level primitive that can make a lot of things versus a high level primitive. You can only customize the color.
1: Mm, okay. And how many people are using the tools now? Do you have a sense?
2: We have an internal team using our tools. We have discouraged external developer use our tools because we like rip everything apart all the time. And it's like, I learned how to use this thing and it's now gone. Uh, but I can tell you that the, the, the tools we align with. So we, our lead developer, Ed Faulkner, is also the uh, steering committee on a uh, JavaScript framework called Ember.js. Um, kind of not the most hard and things, but some of the largest application, including Apple Music is written on it. So it's for large teams, very productive, totally open source, not owned by a single company. Uh, you know, um, and with very nice distribution of, uh, staff. A lot of our tools are actually contributed to the Ember project so that we can put out to as low on the stack as possible. So it's part of what people use every day. So the way we do build system that we do at CarStack is actually being contributed to the Ember project. Those have thousands of users. As far as the one about Web3. We're still early on that. And hopefully, once we build like some standard utility ourselves, we can give people inspiration to build more. But when they build it, they will be using tools like Ember and our contribution to Ember as the foundation of their scripting, templating, the language for looping through things. Those are all uh, contributed back so that we don't have to maintain it, right? So there's a larger community. So that idea of putting your tools in the right community and being good contributor and not just good extractors, it's a good spirit, that I think exist in Web3, but also exist in the OSS open source ecosystem. And and we are a player in that.
1: Yeah. Okay. So to summarize, you have tools in the Web2 world uh, for things like Ember, but you're still kind of iterating on tools for Web3. And those aren't publicly released? Or if they are, you discourage people from using them in production because you're...
2: We use you're it in. ourselves. So we've released a wallet that does an end-to-end payment. So we have a Web3 wallet. You scan and you can pay each other. Uh, and it uses stable coins. It uses bridged stable coin for low fees. It does gasless transactions. The merchant pays the gas fee. If you're buying a socks from someone, you don't have to pay the gas. So it's kind of like what you would expect with a WeChat Pay or Alipay. We built all of that on top of our own stack. We released a mobile wallet uh, called Card Wallet by Card stack on iOS and Android. Fully releasable, you can play with it. Uh, and you can onboard new value using Apple Pay, right? So you don't have to deal with Coinbase and sending ETH or sending DAI or bridging them. Um, so that is how we're testing our tools within our own team. But that is an end-to-end-to-end-to-end-to-end-to-end integration test of our tools on top of the Web3 ecosystem to do something as simple as like a cash app payment. But to make that as seamless as cash app requires us to unite things in Web3 that nobody has done.
1: Hmm. Interesting. Uh, and how is that correlated to the token? Is that still TBD or is there a, uh, or does it depend on every different tool in, in terms of how the token is relating to, right? Because the token itself was not around when we open source and standardized the protocols on the internet and web one and web two. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. How do you see that?
2: I think tokens take on different types of analogy and a token can be many things, ETH is many things and, and, and whatever it might be. The way we look at it is that the most important thing about token is who is getting the token. So far, and that was, it is true thus far, even for Carstack and our ecosystem, is people who have money already gets tokens. Right. By way of either a token generation event back in the days or by Uniswapping and, you know, buying on an exchange or earning it via some say an airdrop by staking. It's basically money begets money. Um, but my, my worry of that is that the number of group of people who want, who get token by way of these kind of, of kind of like, Staking action is always going to be a small percentage of humanity. Most people go around the lie buying eggs and cooking bacon and stuff like that. So, uh, we were invited, uh, Castex, uh, to, uh, to submit an RFP in a project, f- uh, by the, uh, IATA, which is the airline association prior to the pandemic. The project was actually canceled because of the pandemic was saying, oh, we want to think about how airline miles, uh, can be traded using or traded or exchanged or, 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 or mapped or transfer using blockchains. So it's like, Hey, we have some experience. We gave some ideas and wrote a pretty eloquent, uh, thing. And then it's an aha moment. You know how we should distribute all tokens to people when they buy something from you right? So people, we call that spend mining, not liquidity mining, spend money. If you spend money, you get token. It's like reward points, like miles. That's the best way to get tokens of a small amount, but meaningful amount to your customers and your supporters. So we went ahead and said, yeah, that's what we're going to do. So what we build, the reason we build this payment system is that every single time you pay, we record your payment history. And then we distribute tokens based on a formula, like one points for this category, five points for this category, and we give you this claim. That claiming feature launched today. No way. But it, yeah. Today? Yeah, like have, as in today, yeah. today. Awesome. Today, distributing token bus. based on yeah, based on based on what the users uh would do. So we had a beta tester user that was using our QR code based system to pay each other against not buying anything in particular kind of play play money going back and forth, but based on the activity, we actually compensate them or rewarding them. I think that's the long-term way for projects, for businesses, for brands to reward each other, is to take a book from the mileage and loyalty business and use that as a way to say, for a thing you did, the thing that you actually performed that added value to the ecosystem, independent of an investment decision, independent of a community kind of action, you now have this opportunity. You cannot redeem it or you can redeem it and not use it. To get more token distribution, and that works for our token, and we build it in an open-ended way. So, if you want to distribute your token to people who subscribe to a certain something or buy your swag, you can do the same thing. So, we're going to launch that too soon. Yeah,
1: it's interesting. It's also very true in credit cards, right? It's like people spend money on credit cards, the airline points, and the the hotel yes. points, and all this stuff. It's like we've been conditioned to feel like if there's not a two percent or three percent cash yeah. back in some way, then it, I'm not I'm not doing it. Uh, which is yeah. which is you know when you have that psychology pervasive, take advantage of it. Is there a dependency on spending in the currency? So is the idea, in the case of airlines, they may, they could in theory, give you a token for Southwest instead of the Southwest point. If you spend, you know, your US dollars on Southwest buying a ticket, is that, is that slightly different than how you're thinking of it, where the core reward would be distributed if you're spending the token inside the ecosystem already?
2: I mean, if you think about how airlines do it, you spend USD or, or pounds or euro to buy the ticket and you fly and you earn the airline points and then you can spend the airline point to redeem at a good rate compared to a cashback, right? So this idea of like, when do you want to use United Points as a denomination and when do you want to earn it, uh, that uh, it changes. But I can tell you this, we need more fiat dollars in the crypto ecosystem to have buyers of this, idea that we can share in this economy, right? So we need more fiat. Well, one way to get more fiat is for people to kind of allocate a portfolio in the investment speak and kind of bore you to death kind of stuff. The other one is that people are buying things in USD and then they're getting reward in tokens, right? Mm-hmm. Or mileage points. So I actually think that the only way we can grow our ecosystem is get more people to bring fiat in. So I think the best way to start is to start charging for regular things in stable coins as conveniently as a WeChat Pay or Stripe or Cash App and then give them not just Bitcoin, which I think is a good place to start, but give them these community token in addition to Bitcoin maybe as a way to grow community and grow alliance and grow loyalty, right? So that's what we are thinking. It should be primarily about payment in stablecoin. And yes, you can redeem maybe at a ginormous discount. Like you can pay $100 if you pay in USD, but if you have the token, you can pay $50 worth of that token and get the same service. That would be a great way to use it as a discount token. So as I can say, and as up top when we're talking about this, there are many, many things your token can do once you have a composable set of things to do it with, right? So the same... Token can have a discount token type of thing, could have like a staking thing for sure for people who have earned in this ticket. They can get um, some additional rewards. They can do governance or the standard thing. But I think the spend mining idea and using fiat to drive that or like USD or Euro to drive that is actually solving some macroeconomic problem of where's the new money coming from? Mm, yeah, that's very, it's very true. Being bigger part of the economy of commercial economy.
1: There was a guy interviewed who started a company called Lolly, and they're like mm-hmm. uh, ca- cashbacks in Bitcoin. In Bitcoin, yeah. right, right. Which is this exact idea. It's almost like a, it's like a slow leeching from your daily transactions into, right. crypto. yeah,
2: yes. And if you don't sell your Lolly, uh, 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 earned Bitcoin, it, it has gone up in value, and 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 people will feel better about it, or right, you know, as as a way. But you know, there is this idea that you know we. We, I recently did a fireside chat with, uh, one of our advisor, Kip Botner. He's the CMO of, uh, uh, HubSpot, a kind of web two CRM marketing automation company. And he said, you know, this idea of giving tokens in exchange for spending is basically paying the customer acquisition costs that you will otherwise pay to Facebook and Google its ads to your users. Yeah. And then it was like, wow, that means that all of the marketing spent, if there's a way for us to discover new products within your wallet or dApps, how much is marketers willing to give in tokens? And that could be substantial. You could be spending a hundred dollars worth of stuff and getting $4,000 worth peak of rewards from like 10 different people because it's your history for all to see and people can target anybody who has a board ape get this anybody who sold one of these get that it can accumulate pretty fast and again there's a little bit of like you know gasoline on on a fire pit but that's just you know like you know like start a lighter fluid for barbecue sometimes you need that to get started it could be really powerful when people think about token incentives not just as a way to build community but also ways to acquire new customers
1: yeah no, I, I fully agree, especially displacing the money you would spend on marketing anyways, because...
2: Yes, you know, yes. Like, and that is a bad ROI because Facebook takes all the value of that customer acquisition called CAC. And it wasn't always like that. There was a time where you can really build an audience and a community and a customer base in Facebook. And there was a time you could do that with AdWords. But as those companies get bigger and bigger, they take larger and larger, effective, out of it. So it was mostly tax and a little bit of effectiveness. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, we have an experiment of using token reward beyond these small Bitcoin rewards or small, you know, uh, kind of like, you know, airdrops for Bounty hunters, several things. But if we actually like align it with the commercial op- opportunity and swags and, and networks and DAO membership, it's really powerful, but the primitive to figure out how to do this analytic at scale. You can't do the analytic at the same time, right? Your transaction takes this much gas to do. Your reward distribution may be 10 times more gas because there's 10 tokens being distributed. So we do it in a way where all of the computation is off-chain. It's like, Next monthly report, based on everything you've done in the last month, this is all the tokens you can get, which one you want to claim. So that's what we built uh, in the Cot Reward Protocol. Really, really cool on-chain, off-chain stuff, uh, one of a kind.
1: D- does it does it largely depend on attention? Because I think of advertising as just a pure function of attention. So when people spend their attention on Instagram and, and Facebook yes. and TikTok, then the advertising dollars will have to flow there because that's where the eyes are. Same with yes. Google, right? People are typing into yes. Google. Does there need to be a sort of decentralized? I, I interviewed the founder of Brave, which mm-hmm. builds the, the browser that I'm using now, and they they, yeah, they describe to me the the tokenomics between their Bitcoin, their Basic Attention Token, you know, mm-hmm. and the browser itself displacing the advertisers or displacing the publishers rather, which would be Google. So an advertiser could pay directly. That sounds yes. really compelling. Does that need to happen in, in the same way with uh, attention on social? Because I, I feel that social media in particular just seems to captivate such a huge portion of people's daily attention. And if you're going yeah. to spend money as a company, you know, I would love to spend it on some you know, referral program. But whether it's in dollars or in crypto, it seems like you're just up against this this massive attention, attention drain. It's like, you know, you're trying to attract attention, attract attention over here and there's this guy dancing naked on stage with gorillas. Yeah. And it's like, well, everyone's looking over there. So how do you think about that problem?
2: I, I think distribution and, and, and settlement is two different things. So, you know, a lot of times if you go ahead and you have a following and say, hey, here's my TikTok, blah, blah, blah. And to do this, you need to do that, right? Go here, right? Now, Certain platform makes it, makes it easier. Linktree makes it certain easier. So we're launching our Web3 Linktree, so that you can use that as your Instagram URL. has all the same features of so Linktree. We have uh, it's called Card.xyz. So we're using xyz as a signal that it's a Web3 thing, but it's basically a decentralized hosted IPFS version of Linktree. So you can still do your attention thing on social media, just link them back to a Web3 version of Linktree, and with that is QR codes and Wallet Connect and you know, segmented so it doesn't steal your things. And that's how we can get this web three tool distributed through the web two ascension span. Uh But a lot of purists and web three say, "Oh, it should only be in a wallet in a DApp." Like, well, well, nobody's in the wallet in the DApp, right? So you got to go where people are. You, if you're gonna gonna promote a party, you're gonna be outside another party waving <laughs> a poster, right? So our approach is that social is absolutely way. That's where the culture is for now. Maybe decentralized social would take some scale, but right now, let's solve one problem at a time. Let's solve settlement. Let's settle on. Web three, So we can do all these nice spend minings and and, and use activity rewards, but let's get the attention through a replacement of this distribution marketing tool. That's why I'm always talking to Web2 people and Web3 people, because Web2 is where they are now, and that's where we're going to market to them. Mm.
1: How many different tools are there, either in, in various stages uh, within the Cardstack ecosystem?
2: Um, eight. Okay. Right. So, uh, let me count. We have our wallet, which is a, okay. uh, which is a Web3 wallet. We've got our Card Pay, which is kind of like, you know, WeChat Pay. It is a, on, on chain contract. There's exchange rates. It will go in and out of your local currency. We've got Card Rewards, which is. The uh, protocol for reward distribution. Uh, we are building the uh, card stack framework, which is the composability thing. That's con- that's still the hardest thing we we're going to do. Uh, that we are building a decentralized hosting for Linktree, so card.xyc. Um And then I'm sure I'm forgetting the Card Catalog, which is like our app store going to Roblox, which I think is a better analogy than Grand Theft Auto because it's actually open for contributions, still not open source, but at least open. So we have to build that. we are call Card Catalog. And there's a couple other things. Card Space. Is that one of them? Uh, Card Space is Card xyc. So maybe like six to eight, depends on how you slice it. Uh, And then obviously decentralized hosting. So you can choose your jurisdiction for hosting, which... You know, EU is different than US and different than China, right? But they can all host WordPress. So so we want to make sure that our software is not restricted by particular terms of services, but that Vendors can kind of, like the same way they do WordPress hosting in different countries and languages uh, and cultures and regulations, they can run our software and provide that on-ramp, uh, even hosting XYZ website on a different country and just providing that linkage. Um, so there's, uh, there's, there's five or six different active projects going on. I'm sure there are ones that my team was like, well, that's actually its own project. <laughs> uh, but they all integrate. So the important thing is that we see ourselves as a decentralized operating system, a Web3 collaborative operating system. So, you know, an operating system has everything, has login, has storage, has syncing. Um, and, and when people say OS, they tend to be like, we are OS, but we do this one tiny thing. So why we don't do an OS, take ownership of the whole experience, right? Uh, and that's what we do. How many people
1: now working on the project? in the company
2: about 30 people about half of it's developers uh, and so you need a relatively s- a large size team to handle all things but we try to we try to keep the team around two to three developer plus some kind of common designer so we can share ideas so you can look at cost as like, like five or six teams of four
1: yeah yeah and, and uh, money raised I, I've seen I saw a couple different numbers out there H- how much have you guys raised
0: with the lucky Sluts you can get lucky just about anywhere
2: So we used an accounting method called time of receipt of funds. So at the time of receipt of funds in the crazy bull run of 2017 and 18, uh, 35 million total. At the end, wasn't that. And so we've taken a fairly conservative strategy where we try to put some cash aside to run ourselves for 18 months at a time and then keep the rest in crypto shrink up and down, Mm -hmm. (laughs) try to track that 50% mark. Not always. (laughs) Sometimes, for example, when when, when it went way low, I was like, I think we should go all in, right? Like around the pandemic uh, time. And that really helped us uh, a little bit. So we're, you know, rebalanced now and we have a large team. Did you? uh, Be able to do this. uh,
1: Did the company rebuy into the token?
2: Um, not as much as our token and as much as, you know, we want to make sure that we have blue chip because we see our token as the reward for succeeding. The success come from executing the vision. And that means we need to uh, kind of have a treasury strategy that can pay rent. Uh, I think one of the biggest problem of a lot of projects that use their own token to pay people all the time is that just creates this really difficult choice for a person to say, do I want to pay rent or do you want to support the project? While working on the project, right? So we like to, you know, focus is like, you know, this is something on the side. We will get more people and you spend mining to distribute farther and wider than any other project can because we're not just going to the same 15 people with 100 wallets, right? You're actually going to people actually spending and doing real things. So there are a lot of balances that we want tr- try to do. And so our goal has always been imagine where the Web3 would be when the migration of people from Web2 actually came at scale. Mm-hmm. Right, right now we're in this new island waiting for the festival to start. Like the promoters are there, right? The vendors <laughs> are there, the beer people are there, and then like the crazy hardcore fans are there. But the the wave of real concert attendees are not here yet. We always remind ourselves: save your swag for the wave of the masses.
1: Got it. Save your swag for the wa- wave of the masses. I like that. And do you see the the value of the token as something that is? uh a focus to try and grow. I mean some projects don't oh,
2: for sure. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. I, I think it's really important that the 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 distribution and the value of the project Right. Is this that we have this kind of community connection. And I think the token and an NFT even more so, right? The financial value is one thing. The belonging value is everything. Right. And I do believe that combination of NFT and token as driving that kind of like badge and, 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 and like history is a really important thing. So all of the token economics that we're playing around with cartoon apes right now is really important in building real belonging for people who are going to be contributing software, funding new companies, right? You want to give them badges and stuff like that. So so we are always going to be designing primitives and protocol for that big wave versus spending all of that time chasing each other and trying to be cool we're 15 people, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, maybe, maybe we're not the coolest of the 15, but uh, I think we have a bunch of tools that, when the wave comes, we actually have the biggest booth of all of them and say, "Hey, we've been waiting for you. Been a long time. We've been here. We've been here eight years, years, guys. Come on. We've been here.
1: <laughs> we've been out here. Uh, I know. What, are there any other projects that are threatening? I mean, certainly from a competitive standpoint, a standard requires people committing to this standard. Uh, so I imagine that there's there can be, I don't know if there is, but there can be a, uh, a threatening mm. value proposition in the market. Certainly when you start a company, competitive landscape is like one of the things you always include on the slide and displacing yep. incumbents. Is that a big thing?
2: Yeah. Every single time I thought some, someone could be a competitor because they use language of like, we're building the Web3 OS, we talk to them and say, hey, we'd love to use your tools. And they say, this is great. Well, let's work together, whether that's Chainlink or Gnosis or whatever it might be. These are the people who have big ideas about like, you know, being, but they, you know, we're doing different things, right? Like, you know, you're dealing with a decentralized Oracle. You want your feed to be used. We use the feed to figure out what a USD is worth in different chains or what your token's worth when you're swapping it for redemption, right? So, so I don't think we actually feel like we have competitors. I do believe there are some kind of a, how do I say it? An ideal outcome. If a centralized company becomes too successful in using their VC funded resource to build a really nice day to day operating environment, like a Facebook for web three. And then nobody needs this app store and open source stuff. That would be a bad outcome for crypto and obviously a competitor to us. So who can be that? I don't know. You know, there's a lot of, you know, VC funded uh, companies, but they all have founders or project leads who are really believe in the protocol vision. And if they're successful and they make the protocol open and we can use it, then there's always an open source way into that. Um, so I, I would say that what keeps me up at night is that. We work too hard on the hard problem and forget that sometimes people just want a nice place to stay for the night, and whether it's decentralized or not, they just want a hotel. So make sure your Airbnb, the decentralized version, is as comfortable and as cheap. So we we gotta be available right now, yeah. um, and that's why we're pushing to try to get all of these six or seven initiatives moving along the same way, trying to make sure that we remind people that you don't need to compromise on centralization and give one company all your thing. We can actually do this as an ecosystem and we just have to hurry up.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm sure you have a tremendous influence on the team and being both technical and a uh, word savant, and you're clearly very, very energetic <laughs> and knowledgeable about the space. Uh, I think you're not you're not falling victim to the the trap of the engineer who doesn't appreciate the user experience and only gets obsessed about the technology. Which I've talked to CTOs who seem to be in that bucket. Uh, wh- what is your story? So I saw that you had been in music and production prior. Do you mm. uh, play now? Is music a big part yeah, of your yeah, life I, or? I, I,
2: before I studied computer science, I thought I'm going to do like a be music major. So I was like obsessed with music production, early medians, like early, like, you know, digital recording, which was only like, you know, people don't know anything else, but there was a time where you need to put tapes in machines and stuff. Um, so I, you know, I've been, I've been, I, I've been doing all that for so a long time. And the thing that kind of, you know, inspired me along the way is to see the power of these digital audio production tool video production tool, as we mentioned earlier, I do a lot of my video production. I'm inspired by how regular people, artistic people, creative people can learn how to use plugins and modules and software and wiring and sequences and automations and programming to make this amazing things that most technical programmers like how do you do that just by wiring things together in ableton or whatever it might be and that's inspiration for a lot of what i decided is that what if we build a digital audio restoration for making software Mm-hmm. For making the experience, right? To wire it together, which again, if you think about people develop games on Unity and Unreal or something, or even Roblox, they do kind of these wiring things together. So this building block, this composability is very driven by the fact that music production is composable, yeah. right? It's literally composing in notes back in the days of Mozart, but composing now with samples and processings and plugins and chaining things together. So I think my music background as a personal person who would play with those tools and learn it, and got frustrated with it and said, oh my God, how much is it to buy another one of these plugins? <laughs> I'll save up to buy it for 200 bucks. Um, And what if it's open source? And what if it's like, you know, so so to me, that music production thing really formed my head about what is possible with software and why we funding company with a hundred million dollars just to make a spreadsheet that allows you to say update and send, right? That's crazy. That should be as composable as Logic and Final Cut Pro and After Effects. So um, yeah. If you ask, that is where this kind of like, I know it can be done because I've seen it done before. Wow,
1: I really like that a lot. I I resonate a lot. I have a a keyboard, uh, sitting next to me. (laughs) And I, I don't, I I don't use a, I've used Ableton a little bit, but I use logic pro and the Mm -hmm. concept of the plugins. Oh, when I first learned about them and just how many there are, how much work goes into some of these plugins and the composability between the different platforms. It's, uh, it's amazing. It's like the, I mean, clearly we, we see just a explosion of awesome music. And yes, that is a huge part of it, right? Like musicians can just, for sure, drop in yeah. regardless the platform. And
2: and and if you know exactly how like Logic or these tools work, then you understand standardization and customization, right? So in Logic, you can adjust the parameter of any plugin, like a reverb or something like that, and then track it using a standard tool, like a line where it just go across your track. But when you open the plugin, it's a beautiful interface, wood panel, whatever it might be. So this combination of the data being standard, but the experience being unique, but it's like embedded together in an environment, explains exactly what we believe the costing environment will be. If we can make the logic for Web3, we have succeeded. Oh, uh, okay. That's a real... You should start with that. I like that. I like that description. A lot. Ah, but very few people have used logic, like the inspiration uh, of having used this kind of like deep tool. And again, I see that with architects with like Revit and stuff like that, they they understand that, or SketchUp or something like that. But but most people are still in the PowerPoint and Word document kind of thing, and they don't see that plugin. Oh, so you mean you can do an equation editors? Like, well, you don't understand. You've got six plugins in Word. I've got four hundred and eighty. In my logic, that is a very different thing. And, and, and the open, the, the, people making good money selling plugins and selling parts. That's the true composability. I just hope that the revenue distribution of who gets licensings and whether the musician who did the sample get licensing can be automated and, and better informed. And that's where I think crypto can come in to make that store part and the c- compensation a little bit more equal. But as far as the actual creator experience, uh, and and I think it's it's second to none. Like I think it's the it's the best, uh, the best that we have done. I think in software is not in our ability to make SaaS app to keep track of insurance claim, is the explosion of creativity that these kind of power tools for creator has enabled.
1: Yeah, hundred percent agree. I, it's it's hard to disagree with that because the tools at the end of the day, the cash value of building on Web three is a human experience. Right. Like it's, 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 it always, it always transcribes down to that level. And if it doesn't, which this is, this is kind of a segue to something I want to ask you about, if it doesn't Mm -hmm. translate into a cash value, a genuine cash value of human experience, and that could be in the form of gaming and entertainment, it could be in the form of artistic expression, or just pure play and whatever creative method you can imagine. Yeah. Then it be, if, and if it becomes about money, you're doing something uh, to earn money, and that uh, if it like this idea of in gaming that you're you're playing to earn, so you're not doing you're not playing yeah. to have fun, you're playing to earn money, mm-hmm. and then yep. in token mm-hmm. in NFTs, you're buying not because you appreciate the art or there's any value that you're receiving, but because you view yep. the art as going up. There's an ecosystem that needs to exist. Say in the traditional art world, you have collectors who buy it may even just strictly for the valuation of the painting that they believe is going to rise in value but there has to be people who at the end of the day value this painting and want to you know buy a multi-million dollar piece and hang it in their living room do you feel like we're in a place that is unstable with nfts that the craze of people getting into it seems to drastically outweigh uh, the people d- deriving value? And do you assess that in any un- unhealthy way? Clearly, by the way, I'm asking the question, I'm biased, and that's kind of <laughs> the concern I have. So <laughs> tell me what oh, you think.
2: I mean, some p- some people would speculate real estate to buy uh, a, a land in Williamsburg if they believe that people are going to want to move there. But sometimes in the future, someone who really wants to live in Williamsburg actually rent or buy the apartment and live there. It's just because it's early. So the speculators are there to put the plumbing in, to terraform the land, to make sure there's street light on the street, to get rid of the toxic waste dump, right? So I think the investment uh, uh, energy is a good one, but it's one of preparation. Uh, I do believe there are many ways that we can kind of get real utility or, or stuff in, in Web3. And surprise, surprise, it'll be no different than the way internet has been working in Web2. Membership matters. Software tools you use on data you're willing to pay for matters, right? right? Mem- uh, uh, ability to buy something that you can use, not just own for value, matters. Uh, uh, buying something that I like to wear matters, right? Like all these things will come, but uh, they will have to come in what I call the commercial wave and not the speculative wave. Commercial wave is what you buy with your Visa card. I'm sure you can buy ETH with your Visa with your credit card, but mostly you don't, right? You use your retained earnings and other things you've done. Uh, But I I think that when you think about payment in the more traditional, take a card out of your pocket or take your phone out of your pocket to pay, those are the things that people are willing to pay for You have to ask yourself, what is all the things that people are willing to pay for? And can we shift them to this way of doing it in this protocol? Um, So as much as payment is one of those like, oh, don't do crypto payment. Nobody wants it. Do staking, do whatever. Payment is going to be the one that you need to have done before the commercial activity flattens out or expands out the use cases.
1: Mm. Yeah, so pay- people
2: have to be willing to pay for the utility of the thing, not just the potential rise in value.
1: Right, right. And do you feel we're in a position where the, that that the market is lopsided towards people paying for the potential rise in value?
2: Uh, so far, it's still lopsided, but I do see that in every one of these communities, there are some people. Who are like you know? I'm buying music NFT because I really want to listen to it. There's some people who say I'm joining this DAO and buying this token because I really like these people that I hang out with. There's someone who's saying you know I'm actually trying to use the software. <laughs> I bought the token because I want to have an exposure, but I really want to play because I'm a early adopter and playing around with software like playing around with music software plugin. It's fun, and some people do it for fun. So I think there are. They're crowded by the noise of the people who have like from the mountaintops like, oh, you're going to do this. You're going to buy this. You're going to buy that. Uh, But they exist. They're just being drowned a little bit. Uh, My personal feeling is that all the way for the adoption depends on the user experience getting better. If you think about the mobile ecosystem before iPhone, a lot of company was like, oh, we're going to build like, you know, new mobile web. It's like, you know, down, down, down and type AAA and BBB. (laughs) That didn't work because you know, because it sucked as a user experience, but the same exact thing with a large screen and the mobile keyboard that defined as con keyboard that works made you know apple the 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 flag bearer so we need an apple moment in web3 in terms of usability and human centered design um obviously we're working on it but there are many other people that we work with and we use their tools that's working on it as well that that will be the gating factor for us to open up the possibility space where regular people can actually find fun because right now nothing fun about using metamask
1: dude you got to throw a conference and then get up on stage and say Phone, <laughs> computer,
2: right. phone, the phone iPad, from... our iPod, yeah, yeah, <laughs> wallet. <laughs> dab. wallet, dab, life, wallet,
1: dab, life, wallet, dab, life. What's your um? What's your source of inspiration? Do you follow people avidly on Twitter? Are you reading white papers all day? Uh, how how have you accumulated the knowledge and perspective that you have? Or are there certain people or books in particular that you feel were extraordinarily influential in your thinking?
2: I can tell you that the 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 my Twitter feed is a big source of inspiration, not necessarily because of the specific people. Uh, I look at Twitter as a wave of noise that you need to kind of blur your eyes and see if there's a pattern on it. Um, and to me, the individual words don't matter. The vibes don't even matter that much. What's important is the directionality. Uh, that matters. And I know that there are directions that uh, the, the world has taken, like you know, certain tokens or certain market that people are like, oh, fine, I, I would live with that. There's one that people really want to happen, but never happens, like privacy on the blockchain. Um, so I try to figure out between those kind of noise of these kind of basic patterns, uh, what do people want that they can't verbalize. Mm. So I'm trying to figure out what is the missing words in the wave of words. And I try to put those words in my mouth, right? And see if they resonate. So I I am trying to fill in the blanks in this lip here.
1: I love it. That's a really good answer.
2: So you're taking wisdom from the crowd, so to speak. I'm k- thinking the wisdom in the clown looking at what's missing and plugging the holes.
1: So I just need to follow everyone that you follow on Twitter and then I'll be able to
2: say, say, say what they don't say. You see what they don't say.
1: Oh <laughs> uh, it's funny. Uh, Chris this has been a lot of fun man. I really enjoyed talking to you. Uh, You're a great likewise. conversationalist Absolutely. and uh, I could tell you you've you done this before. Yes. Um where what is your Twitter? Where can people follow you and check out at cardstack.com? Yeah, you can...
2: Uh, yeah, Cotstack.com is our website. Uh, you can follow us at codstack. Uh, We're at discord.gg slash codstack. And my personal Twitter is at chrissy, C-H-R-I-S-T-S-E.
1: Sweet. Thank you so much, man. And keep crushing it. And I yeah. hope to have you back on someday. For sure. All right, man. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Around the Coin. If you enjoyed the show today, consider giving us a quick review wherever you listen to podcasts tweet about it or text it to a friend we really appreciate all the support and growing that we can if you have any guests you'd like us to bring on or feedback for us don't hesitate to reach out we would love to hear from you